0: So, clearly, we've got some names that are difficult to pronounce here. Um, Mephibosheth is not a name that, that probably any of you are considering naming their, their son. Um, and this is a story that, that uh, I've heard, but I haven't heard that often in my life. And this last few weeks, as I have been reading and studying and focusing on this, um, in a lot of ways, this story is, is as powerful, if not more powerful, than David and Goliath. And I think that we, we maybe get distracted by some of the names, and so uh, I'm going to call Mephibosheth Bo so that we don't get wrapped around in. This morning as I practice preach, try to say Mephibosheth five or six times in one sentence and it doesn't work. So we're going to call him Bo, and uh, we're going to move along. But remember where we are in the story. Uh, David uh, has now moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, David's enemies have been uh, all defeated david is settling down and ruling we saw a few weeks ago where god uh, david said to god i'm gonna build you a house and god said uh no i'm gonna build you a house And David, overwhelmed by that revelation, fell on his knees, he thanked God, he praised God that God would consider him, and then last week in chapter 8, we saw that the chronicler, the writer of of 2 Samuel, just laid out how God did what he said he would do in the life of David. And so now, this week in in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the narrative picks back up and we get this story. Now... There are some things that are going on here that maybe uh, culturally we're not familiar with. But David asked the question, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? Now, normally, for a king, uh, this means that there's some people about to die. If you look at Near Eastern and Middle Eastern culture, if you look at the Babylonians, you look at the Phoenicians, you look at the Hittites, you you, you look anywhere in that culture and time period and kingship, what would happen is if you became king, then whoever was king before you, everybody in his house had to die. The last thing you wanted running around was somebody who could lay claim to the throne, because whenever anybody got upset or got aggravated or got got to where they didn't like the way things were going, they could look at that other guy's family and say, "Well, we could. He could do it better." I mean, it's just human nature, right? I mean, we all do that when. Uh, when, when we see things, well, it could be better if. And so it was normal practice when a king, uh, you don't even have to look any further than the Bible. In fact, if you look in the Bible, we see this in, uh, in the life of Israel. You have a king named Basha, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father. In his sin, he made Israel to sin. Bashar, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Bashar struck him down at Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all of Israel were laying siege at Gibeathon. So Bashan killed him in the third year of Asa king of Judah and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left of the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it. According to the word of the Lord that he had spoke by a servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. So here we see Basha killed everybody in Jeroboam's house. So Ashah is king for a while. He has a son. And then lo and behold, same thing happened. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Bashar, began to reign over Israel in Tizra. And he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. And when he was at Tizra, drinking himself drunk in the house of Azra, who was over the household at Tizra, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And when he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Bashar. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. So this guy went so far as to kill all of the former king's household and then killed all his buddies. He wanted to make sure nobody could lay claim to the throne. And so it was fairly normal for a king. The house of David is now taken over for the house of, of Saul. And he said, hey, is anybody left in Saul's house? That, normally speaking, would not have been a question that caused celebration. A little trickle of fear went down everybody's back when that happened. And so we see that in the life of Israel. We see that with Bashar. We see that with his son. We see that with Jehu. Dale Davis wrote, it was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. And everybody practiced it. The way to ensure that your kids or your grandkids didn't deal with any usurpers to the throne was to kill everybody that was associated with the other king. And so David stepping up and going, Hey, Saul, have any family left? Normally would not be a good question. I mean, there's some things that just put fear in your heart, right? Uh, when I was a little kid, um, my grandmother collected. Um, These types of Aladdin lamps that were antiques, she uh, hobnail Aladdin lamps. I don't know if you've ever seen them; they're really pretty. And so they were. She, we had them in our house, sitting on the mantle, one on either side. That were a couple of hundred years old. Were beautiful. They were functional art. And so me, being uh, the kid that I was, uh, so uh, we'll just leave that at that. Was running around the house one day and decided, uh, in my wisdom, that I was going to do a pull up on the mantle. So I grabbed hold of the mail and pulled up, in that mail and that man went whoop like this. And those hobnail lamps went boom onto the hearth of the fireplace and went psh. to this day. If I see an Aladdin lamp, I just get real nervous and back away because the wrath of God fell on me. And so, as we read this, and you read David say, Hey, anybody still alive in Saul's house? That's not a good thing at all. We see here that Mashibaleth, Bo, was disabled. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, there's this aside note that says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she, he fell and became lame, lame, and his name was Mashibaleth. So what had happened is when Remember when Saul and Jonathan and, and Jonathan's brothers were fighting against the Philistines that Saul and his brothers was killed. And so at that moment, uh, when some word of that came to, to Saul's house, the, the, the nanny, if you will, the nurse that was taking care of uh, Bo, picked him up and went to run to go hide him. And as she was doing so, she dropped him. Invariably, he, he broke both of his feet, probably at the ankles, and then they set with his feet crooked, and so he was, was uh, disabled. When David calls for the servant of Saul and he asks him, hey, what's, does Saul have any, any children left or any, any of his house left? The servant answers him, there is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The guy didn't even mention his name, probably because it was Meshibboleth, and that's pretty hard to say, but he just says, yeah, he's got that crippled kid. Now, this is for free. This is an aside. Uh, but you see here that to this servant, all Bo was was crippled. It was not a, he, he didn't, didn't say his name, didn't, didn't say anything about him. It was just, yeah, that's right, there's that crippled kid that lives over. I don't even know where he lives. He's over past Aniana. I, I don't know. I hadn't heard anything about him. And so one of the things that we can read this story and see is David's going to treat him very differently. We who are of the people of the book recognize that every human being is made in the image of God. And the attitude that we see from this servant is wicked. Whether a person is Muslim, Buddhist, whether they are blind or deaf, whether they are black or white, no matter what, if if they're a human being, they are made in the image of God. And they have infinite value. A few years ago, uh, I was sitting around with a group of of senior boys, and they had invariably been studying about Sparta, and the Spartan way to deal with anybody that was born with a deformity was to take that baby out and throw it outside of the city. The idea was, was that anybody that had any deformities, anybody that was blind or deaf or or, or mute or had a withered hand, that that person, if their genes were put into the society that that would lower the value of the society and so they would kill that baby throughout human history that's more normal than the way we do it and so I had one of these senior high boys that had been saying that say why do we why in America do we do we value somebody that's that's born with a deformity and I was able to say that that is something that is left in our culture from the Judeo-Christian ethic that comes from the Bible because everybody who is born, everyone who is created by God, because they're made in God's image, have an infinite value. When Ann and I were pregnant with our first child, Emily, we were about three months along, and Ann called me at work and said, there's a problem with the baby, and I rushed home. Uh, In fact, I I probably uh, am lucky that I didn't kill myself getting home. And Ann and I went to the doctor's office, and we sat across from the doctor who said, your child has um, Down syndrome. And it would be cruel to bring that child into this world. And so I'm strongly recommending that you abort her. Now, those of you that know Emily know that she doesn't have Down syndrome. But we didn't even consider that because even if she had been born with Down syndrome, she still would have been of infinite value because she's made in God's image. If I were digging around in my attic and I found a painting by some master, some by some Rembrandt, some, some uh, Matisse or some uh, Salvador Dali, even if it was worn out and broke and, and had been wadded up and not treated well, it would still be of infinite value because of who made it, Right? I wouldn't just throw it away and go, yeah, I found this Rembrandt, but but it's old and worn out, so I'm just going to chuck it. No, it's still worth millions and millions of dollars because of who made it, right? Every human being, every human being is of infinite value because who created it and the fact that that human was made in the image of God. So that's for free. That's an aside. It's not even in my notes. Brian's probably looking at my notes going, where did this come from? But I just want to throw that out there. When the servant was asked, uh, the servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled. Now, David says over and over that the reason why he wants to do this is because for the love of Jonathan. If we back up into First Samuel, we see that there is a covenant relationship between Jonathan and David. In First Samuel eighteen, we read: As soon as it's talking about David, as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on it and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him over the men of war and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Jonathan's servants. And so here when things were going well, David is fighting for, his, uh, for Jonathan's dad. They made a covenant together. They were friends for life. And they covenanted together that they were going to watch out for each other and they were going to watch out for each other's kids. I'm not just reading that into the text. In 1 Samuel 20, it says, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then sin and disclose to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away. So there were friends in good times, and now that times are bad, Jonathan is holding up his end of the bargain. Jonathan could have easily turned his back on David and tried to because Jonathan was going to be the king if David died. But Jonathan wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for the covenant relationship that he had. And he said, May the Jonathan said to David, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so here we see in the good times they were close and they had covenanted together and in the bad times they stuck it out. Here it would have been so easy for Jonathan to turn his back on David and become king himself. And yet Jonathan recognized the covenant that they had and recognized that God's hand was on David. And so here Jonathan, in the position of strength, is saying to David, hey, when God takes care of you the way I know he is, make sure that you watch out for me and my house. And so David now, fast forward 20 years down the road, is doing what he said he would do. Now uh, Moshebo recognized that When he was called, it probably wasn't a good thing. The text lets us know that Bo, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. Immediately when Bo walks in the room, he knows that if everything holds true, logic would dictate that the fact that I've been called to this king means I'm about to die. And so Bo comes in the room, he lays out in front of David, he says, he pays homage And he says, I'm your servant. And then David does the unthinkable. David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that I should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, we found that the servant Ziba had more or less taken control of Saul's property. And so David restored Bo's inheritance. The stuff that was rightfully his, that it had been lost because of Saul's folly. All of the things that sin had disrupted, David restores to Bo. Puts him back in the position that he, he gave. Gave him all of his property back. Restored his inheritance. From that property, he commanded the servant. Okay, from now on, you've got to take care of his property so that now Bo has an income he's taken care of and th- things can truck right along. But not only did David do that, he took, went to the next step. He gave him a position like a son. So Mashibaleth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like I said, this is not a story that we hear talked about a whole lot, but I want to say, uh, as a man, I can look at this story, and I think this story is in some ways more powerful than the story of David and Goliath. Okay, fear has a way of bringing out the extremes, right? When the rubber hits the road and it's wide open, typically fear either brings out cowardice or heroics. And so here David in front of Goliath, when he stands there, a young boy, and says, so that all the world will know that there's a God and he reigns in Israel. I'm going against you, Goliath. But here we see David when all the battles have been won. All of the wars had been fought. It's just the day-to-day grind that David returns and does what's right. Oftentimes, men, in our lives, the thing that will destroy us, the thing that will wear us down, isn't those big moments. Right? If your kid gets rushed to the hospital, usually people don't have a hard time remembering to pray. I've never been turned down, hey, can I pray for you at the hospital? Ever. Ever. There are no atheists in the foxhole. You've read that. Those big moments, we cry out to God. Where my soul gets stained and worn is the Monday after Monday after Monday after Monday after Monday of getting up, putting my boots on, going to work. The day after day after day after day after day. And that boss is in my ear and everybody knows that he's an idiot and I could do the job way better than him. And he's riding me. And my soul just gets worn down from the day after day after day after day. It would have been so easy for David to do what was best for him and not what he said he would do. It would have been so easy for nobody would have questioned it if David, when he said, hey, does Saul have anybody left in his household? And this servant came and said, oh yeah, there's Bo down there in Aniana. If he said, you know what? Hey, come here, Go, go down to Aniana and take him out. Nobody would have questioned that. Everybody would have said, oh, that's the way it's done. But David knew the promise that he made to Jonathan, and he remembered it. And so, he did what was right. It's easy to do what's right when everybody's watching. Isn't it? It's easy to do whatever, what's right when everybody's looking to see what you're going to do. But when you're at home by yourself, fooling around on the internet, that's when the enemy's gonna attack your soul. When you're at the office and nobody's looking, that's when the pitfalls are gonna present themselves. Be like David. Those moments are when we grow our soul when we obey, when we do what we know to do is right. So to me, this story is hugely powerful because here David is, when he could have got away with not doing what was right, nobody would have known and nobody would have cared. So, if we've said, when I preached way back two or three years ago on David and Goliath, and I said, I warned us against looking at that story and saying, okay, I'm David. I'm the guy that's standing there, and I'm going to, and, and Goliath is my sin, my fear, my anxiety. And so I'm going I'm to fight that and be victorious. I said, no, 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 let's not do that. Jesus, when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, returned to the Old Testament and showed how everything pointed to him. The better way to look at that story is Jesus is David. Goliath is my sin, my issues, because if I'm the one fighting it, there are times when I'm going to lose. I don't want to look at it that way. I want to look at it because Jesus is always victorious. So let's not do the same thing here. Let's not look at David's victory and look for ourselves as much. So what can we learn from this? I think there are two things we can walk away from this story with to apply to our life. One is the difference between a covenant and a contract. Okay, everybody in here has uh, had contracts in their life. I remember when I worked for uh, Dimension Data, we did this big contract with a, with a customer and it took about four weeks of every day sitting in a conference room around this big table while we talked about every last detail of what we were going to do. So we had to talk about how much equipment was going to cost, what time we were going to get to an office, how many people we could have in the office during regular business hours, how many people would be in the office when it was off hours, what time on Monday morning the network would come back up live, what time we would leave on Monday after we made sure that there were no issues, where the phones were going to sit on everybody's desk, what was everybody's answering message going to be when they got there. Every minutia of every detail was hammered out in this stupid contract. And we would think that we had it all together and we'd send it off to legal and they'd send it back. No, this, you got to change this, got to do that. And then once we actually started doing it, let me tell you what, that contract, that big, huge thick, became the Bible. You would walk, show up at 4.30 and they'd say, according to the contract, you're not supposed to really start working till 4.45. like, oh, okay. And so that, the purpose of the contract was so that everybody could look at what everybody else was doing and make sure you were following it. You all, most everybody in this room, the main time you've dealt with a contract is when you purchased a house, Right? You bought a house. You put a con- Well, it's what we say. You put a contract in. You got a contract that says, okay, when you leave the house, you're going to leave the refrigerator, and you're going to leave. I don't want these nasty curtains. You get them out, but I want these curtains over here. You got to leave them, and then they'll come back and say, "Well, you're going to have to pay me more if I'm leaving my beautiful curtains." And then you you hammer out the details of the contract, and then on the day that you do the walkthrough or do the final inspection, you walk around and go, "Hey, where's my curtains?" I'm looking at this contract, you signed it saying you left me the curtains, where's the curtains? Or, hey, the refrigerator one I looked at before didn't have, the crisper wasn't cracked, now the crisper's cracked, you need to give me a new crisper. That's the way a contract works. Contracts are made because we're all wicked, evil people, and we've got to keep each other straight. A covenant is different. A contract is between two people. A covenant's between three. A covenant is between The covenant of marriage, for example, is between a man, a woman, and God. The covenant between David and Jonathan was between David and Jonathan and God. And David recognized here, even though it was illogical, it wasn't politically smart, that God was the enforcer of that covenant. And that if David had violated that covenant, not only would he have to deal with the consequences here on this earth, but he would have to deal with the consequences eternally. It is said in the Bible, and I believe this if you watch people act like fools, that the reason they can do that is there's is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't believe that God's going to make it, gonna, going to reward us for what we do, whether it's good or bad. For people in this room, most of the adults in this room have entered into a contract. Relationship with their marriage, and I want us to look at that a little bit to see the difference between a covenant and a contract. Ephesians chapter five, Paul lays out the theology, and then at the end of the chat, the book, he lays out how it practically works out. He says, "Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior." So all the husbands in here are like, "Yeah, woman, submit." I do think it's funny that for the wife it's just a real short paragraph and for the, the husband, God realized we're a little thick and he had to explain it. All right, ser- okay, seriously guys, <clears throat> let's work through this. Um, that's that, that's uh, an aside. Um, so this is a covenant laid out. Now, if this was a contract, as it's talking about what the wives are supposed to do, I'm looking over her. Hey, woman, get me a sandwich. I bet if I ask people to raise hands, you've heard this text preached that way. A covenant, I'm not looking at Anne's job. A covenant, I'm looking at my job. Because the covenant is I've agreed before God that I'm going to do something. And so I read this text and say, I can't love my wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. It's certainly not possible for me to be sacrificially loving my wife and barking orders at her. It's not possible. The difference also between a contract and a covenant is when we fulfill the covenant, we satisfy our own joy. Men, I'm gonna tell you a secret. We've been talking about this in Sunday school. If you want to find your happiness, you want to find your joy, stop worrying about her job and focus on loving her the way Christ loved the church. Because when you do that, you accident on your own joy. And so the covenant is for both parties, involves mutual benefit. The husband and wife can both be happier, more filled with joy than they've ever experienced before when they're doing their part because God is both the enforcer and the blesser over that covenant. And so we see here David, even when it didn't make sense, even when it would have been politically expedient for him to do something else, honoring the covenant that he had with Jonathan, and we see God blessing him because of that. The most important thing, however, that we learn from this is think about this picture. Bo brought nothing of value to the table. He couldn't fight for David. He was disabled. He couldn't... He didn't bring any political alliances. His dad had ruined his reign because of his sin because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. Bo brought nothing to the table. And yet, here we see David saying, not only, not only am I going to restore what was lost, but I'm going to make you a son. You're going to eat at my table. I'm going to press down, overflowing, bless you. There should be been all kinds of things go off that, that re- you recognize something. The text that, that Jeff read should tell us exactly what we're, the, this is a beautiful four picture of. A picture of God's love toward you. In Romans 5 it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. What he's saying is, is hey, there are people who die for a cause. There are people who die for other things. But nobody's going to die for somebody who's fighting against them. Nobody's going to die for somebody who's at battle against them. Nobody's going to die for somebody who, who di- can't give them anything. But God showed his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, while you were lost in your sin, while you were doing what you wanted to do, at enmity, at battle with God, saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. Who do you think you are, God, to tell me what to do? While we were at war with God, did he war back? No, No. while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled, brought back into the family. We are just like Mo- Mo- both. We bring nothing of value to the table. We're crippled by our own sin. We're unable to serve Him. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're slaves to sin. We are bound, literally, slaves to the sin in our life. And while all that's going on, while we're at war with the Holy God, He says, She's mine. Which means if He's the actor, That has an unbelievable implication. Because there are people in this room right now who think, you know what, I can't serve God. I've done too much bad stuff. There's no way that God could love me and use me. You're crippled in your mind by the fact that you're afraid that you're going to lose God. If you look at this story and see the gospel in it, you realize that you weren't the actor. You see, just like Meshiboleth isn't the one who's trying to convince anybody of anything, it was the covenant that held and constrained David. and God, through his son, has covenanted with you. That not only would he justify you, not only would he forgive you for the things that you've done. See, most Christians settle up with the fact that God forgave me, that justification side. We realize that we don't bring anything to our own salvation except the sin that requires forgiveness. We recognize that. And so we say, thank you, God, for forgiving me. But see, God's not done. If it was just about you getting saved and that being it, then God could have raptured us out the moment we got saved, right? No, God wants to change you and convert you into his image, make you more like his son, little by little, step by step, little by little, step by step. You become more like Jesus so that you become a tool that's usable so that you can be put to work for him so that not only does he save us, he equips us so that we can be his people. And so we see in this story a beautiful picture of God reconciling us and then adopting us as his own children. And so you, if you're a believer, if you're in him, you are now his sons and daughters. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we live in the light of our adoption that we live in the light of our inheritance, that we recognize that you want us to be walking in you, moving forward in you. You want us to be changed and conformed to your image. You want us to lay aside every sin that does so easily hold us back and be changed, be new, Oh, God, help us to live in that light. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for all that you're doing for us and through us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This altar is open.